And today, I'm excited to get into the word. We are going to be in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it out and go to Acts 19, 21 through 41. Meet me there, and I will read. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing." And that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Azarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together." Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another." But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Jesus, this is your word recorded for us that we would read and be strengthened and be encouraged, and that we would have our hearts and our minds turned toward you. God, I pray that your word would be the focus of this evening, and that we would hear from it, understand it, know your desires for us, God, and that we would respond accordingly. I pray that you would be supreme in our lives, preeminent over all else. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine how the West Side 
would be affected if nobody ever applied to UCLA again. Imagine what would happen if all the tech industry and the startups just bailed. Right? What would happen if tourism just ceased? These things are massive economic influences on the West Side. These, seems, these things are pretty unlikely. UCLA is the number one applied to university in the nation. Uh, tech seems to be doing well out here. And as long as LA is still standing, people are going to come and enjoy the sunshine. But I imagine that's probably how the Ephesians felt about their great goddess Artemis and all of the pilgrims who came out there year after year and funded their economy and their civic pride. Now, I'm not comparing UCLA and technology and sunshine to a demonic uh, deity here in uh, Ephesus, but just comparing the fact that it funded a lot of the city and to lose it would be difficult. See, Artemis wasn't just one of many pagan gods. Her cult was one of the greatest and most potent in the world at that time. There were 33 worship sites spread abroad through the Roman Empire from Spain to Syria where people would come to worship her. And the epicenter of Artemis worship was right here in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the traditions surrounding Artemis were also significant. She was regarded as the great mother. And within her divine responsibilities were such things as wild animals, fertility, and chastity. I'm not quite sure how those last two fit together, but they made it work somehow. And from the ancient inscriptions written about her, we know that she was regarded as one who, check this out, she was regarded as savior, as healer, as one who answers prayers, who had lordship over supernatural powers, including demons, which Lorenzo talked about last week, and even had the power over fate. She was worshiped and praised beyond many other pagan gods at this time. All of this made the temple of Artemis and the city of Ephesus a major destination for pilgrims seeking to offer their worship to this goddess. People came from all over the empire and they funded the economy and they funded that city's pride. And so you can imagine their reaction when culture began to take a shift. See, Paul had come. And Paul had come preaching the gospel. It was the same message that he had preached in Athens just a few chapters ago that gods made with hands are no gods at all. That accusation is that Artemis is actually powerless to save. She's powerless to heal. She doesn't hear your prayers. She doesn't answer your prayers. She has no power over fate, over demons. Artemis is nothing because gods made with hands are no gods at all. 
But in Paul's ministry, we see evidence that Jesus does answer prayers, that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus does cast out demons, that Jesus does have the ability to change a man's heart on the spot through faith alone, and the people have never seen anything like it. They've never seen anything like what Paul is declaring and what they are seeing through his ministry. And so amidst the chance of great is Artemis of the Ephesians, there is a revival taking place that is evidence that of the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is still greater than Artemis. But Jesus is not just a greater God than Artemis is a God. But Jesus alone is God, right? Jesus has no rivals. In this sense, there are no other gods. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, the apostle Paul writes, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. If gods made with hands are no gods at all, then in this sense, Jesus has no rivals. And so Jesus alone would be worthy of our praise. This is what the word worship actually means. It means worthship. It's worthship. It's declaring the ultimate worth, the ultimate value of something. Jesus is most worthy. He is worth the most. He is the most valuable thing in all of the universe. And so he is to be our greatest desire. He's the, he's the greatest thing we could desire. What could we ever receive from him or from anything else that would be more valuable than the most valuable thing on earth? But what happens when other desires do creep into our hearts and become more significant to us than him. In this sense, there are many gods, right? Gods made with hands are no gods at all. In that sense, Jesus alone is God. He has no rivals. But when we allow lesser things to creep into our lives and start desiring them more than we desire him, we prove that there are many gods. There are many false idols competing for preeminence in our lives. And these false gods, these idols are not necessarily carved images that we put up in temples and bow down to and pray to and light candles to. An idol is anything we turn to for comfort, for satisfaction, for identity, or anything else that we should be receiving from God alone. Similarly, while the Ephesians claim to worship Artemis as supreme, we see in this text that there's actually a whole host of other false gods beneath the surface. And it takes coming face to face with the supremacy of Christ to begin to flush those things out. And we too need to be reminded as followers of Jesus, we need to be reminded of Jesus' supremacy over all of these false gods to keep us from turning to them instead of turning to Jesus. And ultimately, it's going to be the supremacy of Christ that will expose our idols and depose them from their position of prominence in our lives. 
And so today we're going to, we're looking at this passage and I think that we can actually learn a lot from some ancient pagans. Luke here says that there arose no little disturbance. Right? I, again, last week, Pastor Lorenzo talked about words and phrases that we use that we don't understand why we use. Luke uses this one twice. There's no little disturbance. The translation is, there was a big disturbance. Right? There, was, there was a huge disturbance. Demetrius made his living selling these little silver replicas, which he made no little profit from. He made a ton of money from selling these little replicas of Artemis' temple. But over time, he begins to see a drop in sales. Right? He's beginning to notice that there aren't as many pilgrims in his shop anymore. He's beginning to notice that the bottom line is being affected month after month, year after year. He's not needing to pass off as much work to the other craftsmen in the guild. And his standard of living is beginning to decrease and he realizes what's going on. It's Paul's fault. Paul is the problem. He freaks out. Why does he freak out? I think Demetrius would want people to believe that he is a faithful worshiper of Artemis, that he, he is a devout follower of Artemis and anything that would diminish Artemis's glory or Artemis's, uh, Artemis's preeminence in the city would be appalling and he must not stand for such a vile thing to take place in his city. But that's not why he's upset. That's not why he's angry. There is a God beneath the surface, hiding beneath the facade of Artemis. He assembles the craftsmen and what does he say? He says, men, you know from this business, we have our wealth. We have our wealth from this trade. This is how we make a living. This is how we prosper. It is from these artifacts. It is from these idols that we have our wealth. But this Paul is going around and he's turning many people astray, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And he says something interesting. He says, not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia, Paul is turning people away. Even if this were an exaggeration, it is evidence that Christianity is taking the Roman Empire by storm in this time, that even a God as magnificent as Artemis was threatened by the gospel. His words expose his primary motivation and expose the first God in his heart, money. Now, I wish we had time to go into an entire theology of wealth and money, but let me say this, that money is a good thing. Money is a good thing, but it is not God. It is not to be the preeminent thing in our lives. But how we handle money, how we use our money, is a direct reflection of our relationship to God. At least in two occasions, Jesus judged somebody's spiritual condition based on their relationship to money. 
You have the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? And he says, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sad for he had great wealth. And Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because he was not willing to part with his wealth, because he loved his wealth more than Jesus, he was not in the kingdom. He went away sad. But in another instance, we have Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was also a thief. And Jesus comes to Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus says, here, Lord, what I have stolen, I give back even four times what I took. And Jesus' words to Zacchaeus are, today salvation has come to this house. Because of his willingness to give up his finances, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Money is a good thing, but it is not God. And yet how we handle money is a direct reflection of our relationship with God. Our finances, our stewardship is a discipleship issue. For too long, money and other things like that have been seen as practical and therefore not spiritual. But money is a spiritual thing. But it is tricky. Money is tricky because so often we don't, money is not our God. It's what we can buy with the money that is our God. Money is just a means of acquiring what we want. Unless you're Scrooge McDuck, you probably don't delight in money just so you can do backstrokes in a swimming pool full of coins. All my 80s children are with me. DuckTales, yeah. Look it up. It holds up too. DuckTales, it does. <laughs> Money is usually a means for acquiring whatever our God is. And if you want to know what your false gods are, then consider how you spend your money. Because the amount of money we spend on something is a literal depiction of how much we value it. How much it is worth to us. Our bank statements show what we value most in life because we spend money on those things. It exposes what something is worth to us in comparison to other things. And so I'm not talking about those of us who are just living outside of our financial means, right? But I'm talking about those of us who might be living within our means but with jacked up priorities, spending exorbitant amounts of money on one thing over another thing that we should be prioritizing. For instance, how much do we spend on items of comfort and luxury and entertainment? Right? Uh, this, is, this is me eating out because I don't want to cook dinner because I'm lazy. It's comfortable. It's easy. Or I don't want to make my coffee in the morning, so I'm going to go to the coffee shop every day and spend my money there. It's not wrong to do those things. Not at all. But when other things in my life are suffering because of it, it's a problem, right? Going to, to shows and to games and to events, none of these things are wrong, but if they're causing us to sacrifice a higher priority like being generous with your church and your community or paying your bills on time, then it's a problem. There might be a false God beneath the surface that needs to be exposed and removed from your life. And the way we do that 
is in recognizing the supremacy of Christ in those things, that Jesus is all-satisfying, that Jesus is our comfort. He is the one that gives abundant life that cannot be acquired with wealth. He gives us abundant life that is both now and eternal. Or maybe our spending reflects a desire for status or reputation. The neighborhood that you live in, whether you can afford it or not, the car you drive, the brands you wear. I was in the arts district uh, just last weekend um, doing some uh, wedding suit shopping for my brother-in-law and his wedding coming up. And down the street from where we were, there was a pop-up shop where there was a collaboration between Louis Vuitton and Supreme, right? And if you know any, you're familiar with Louis Vuitton, some of you may not be familiar with Supreme. It's just an overpriced streetwear company. Sorry for those of you who support Supreme. It's it's great, I love their clothes. I just can't afford to buy them, so I hate them even more. (laughs) Two of the most overpriced companies coming together in collaboration, and there's people walking down the street with bags full of tens of thousands of dollars in merchandise. Again, none of this is necessarily wrong in and of itself. But how much are we prioritizing the things that bring us status, the things that bring us reputation over other more significant things? I actually think that this is Demetrius's issue. That it's a reputation, it's a status thing. Look at verse 27, he says, and there is danger that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, may get a bad reputation. If Paul's message is successful and everyone in Ephesus and in the surrounding region believes then no one is going to buy these artifacts anymore and we run the risk of being seen as dishonorable men in a dishonorable trade and in an honor-shame society, this would be public humiliation. His, 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 his desire for money was what the reputation, the status within society that it could bring him. And now his reputation, his status is at stake. Sometimes money can be a means for status, for reputation. But in Christ, when we recognize that Jesus is supreme, we understand that we have a greater status than money can buy. Because if you have believed in the gospel, then you are children of the creator of heaven and earth, the God of the universe. You are royal and there is no status on the planet that is greater than that. The money can also be a security thing. This is huge. Maybe you don't spend money at all. You're sitting here and you're going like, I don't buy those things. I don't buy those things. I don't buy anything because I need my money in the bank in case something happens, I know I'll be safe. Right, we hoard it up. We stockpile it. Money, many people look to money to protect them. Think of how important it is to save for retirement. And at least 75% of this room right now is freaking out because you know you haven't saved enough because money can protect us. Money can be a security thing, but we need to know that Jesus is our security. It doesn't matter what befalls you. It doesn't matter how great your wealth is, how little your wealth is, how abundant your, your bank statements are, or how desperately impoverished you are. If you have Christ, you have 
everything because you know what the Bible says is that you are the heir with Christ. Christ is the heir of all things and you are co-heirs with him. How many times have you seen someone who had just a wealthy relative die and now they're, they're rich? Our wealthy relative is Jesus, the God of the universe. Everything belongs to him. And we are heirs with him. We have everything that we need in Christ. And so whether in wealth or poverty in Christ, we can have joy and contentment either way. So you see how nuanced this is? It's not just money that's the problem. It's not just money that is God. And these are just a few. We haven't talked at all about success or fame or power, right? Power, the ability to make your problems go away by throwing money at it or by throwing money at someone to get them to do what you want. Money can make you God. You are the God in that situation. It's not money that is the problem. Money is not the root of all evil. That's a misquote. Money is a root of all kinds of evil. Our hearts are the problem. Our hearts, the sin there, that is the root of all evil. Our hearts are the issue. And this subtle nuance is why money is one of the biggest causes for marital conflict and divorce. Because two people use their money to serve two different gods. Right? If you are married here or you ever want to be married, you need to get this. Because you need to understand what money means to you and what money means to your spouse. Because if you're only talking numbers, you're never going to resolve financial conflict if you leave it on the surface talking numbers because one person spends their money on status while the other person on security. And so now the extra money that one person wants to spend on that bigger house in the better neighborhood in order to elevate their family's position in society is seen by their spouse as a direct attack against their family's safety. And it happens all the time. And both of these are an attempt to build our own kingdom instead of God's. Whether it's elevating our status by a new house, a new neighborhood, whatever that is, or by, by protecting ourselves with finances. Either way is a desire to build our own kingdom instead of God's kingdom. We need to expose the idols underneath the surface and depose them from the authoritative position in our lives by bringing the supremacy of Christ face to face with it. It applies to all of these. Consider how you spend your money, whether you're building a kingdom for yourself or advancing God's kingdom. You might be surprised to find what's lurking beneath the surface of your spending habits. Jesus is greater than money and greater than any God that money can feed. Demetrius continues, 
He says, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And everyone starts chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Luke says that they all rush the theater, dragging Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, with them. This great theater in Ephesus can hold up to 25,000 people. And they all all come together and pack the place out and they're chanting and one, some people cry out one thing and some people cry out another thing and some people don't know why they're there. And I don't know if Luke is trying to be funny, but that's hilarious, <laughs> right? But that's so true. This is a picture of mob mentality. There they were just, there's, oh, there's a crowd of people. I wonder what's going on. We do that all the time. That's how I found out about the pop-up shop downtown. So there's a group of people, what's going on? Oh, I can't afford that. <laughs> if you ever wanna draw a crowd, just assemble a crowd, right? And people feel the need to join it. It's why coffee shops prime the tip jar so that other people come up and go, oh, other people are doing that. I need to put money in there. It's our mentality that we have. We just need to be like other people. This is a brilliant depiction of mob mentality. They even get a guy, they put a guy forward, uh, uh, Alexander, to make a defense, most likely because at this time, Christianity was only seen as a sect of Judaism. And so the Jews who also did not like Paul wanted to make sure that the other pagans around them knew, hey, don't, don't come talk to us about this guy. We got nothing to do with that. And so they put Alexander up, and as soon as he starts to talk, they realize that he's a Jew, and they shout him down for two hours. That's ridiculous. Just this mob, this frenzy going on. They shout him out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's this mob mentality. So they suspend all reason, all judgment, and rally around the dumbest, sometimes most dangerous things. People get sucked into this mentality all the time because it feels good to be in agreement with others. It feels good to be a part of the majority. It feels good to have others on your team, to share commonality, to share an experience. Have you ever wondered why watching a comedy movie by yourself is not as funny as seeing it in the theater? I know a movie is funny if I watch it by myself and I'm still laughing out loud. Every time I watch Dumb and Dumber. Every time. <laughs> every time. Or why do people go to concerts when they already know the album, when they already own the album? It's because listening to it in a, a, a group with people changes the experience. The same goes for sporting events, right? I am one of the rare people in this world who can sit down and watch all nine innings of a baseball game but I never stand up in my living room and go, let's go Dodgers, <laughs> right? But being in the stadium, I wanna like paint my face and rip my shirt and start screaming with people. Let's go Dodgers. <laughs> Jesus has supremacy over Dodgers. I have to remind myself that. It's this mob mentality can influence us, the people in Ephesus, including those who were not directly impacted by the economic downfall of the idol industry, were still rallying together with the craftsmen. 
And the draw of the crowd was so significant that people joined it not even knowing why and just got swept away by it. It's this broken need for community that makes things like this reality. Now, community is a big deal. I know community is a big deal at Collective and you guys do it really, really well. But even community can be an idol. Even community can be a false God. Now, Christian community should always be pointing us to faithfulness to Jesus and maturity in Christ. But most of us are members of multiple communities, not necessarily multiple Christian communities, but multiple individual communities. And we are influenced in different ways by those different communities. And I would ask you in the same way to consider how you spend your money, consider how you are influenced by the different groups of people in your life. How are you influenced by coworkers? What's your personality like when you're around them versus when you're around your gospel community, your discipleship groups, your, your, your spouse? How are you influenced by friends at school? How are you influenced by family? This is a big deal. My older brother, I disagree with everything going on in his life, and yet when he's there, I just want to make him happy. Like I just, look, big brother, here I am. I'm influenced by him, and I hate it. How are you influenced by others, by social media, by popular opinion, by emotional rhetoric that you see on Facebook? Fall down the rabbit hole of comment threads all the time. I hate myself for it because I get so angry and I'm like, I don't even know these people. I don't even care about this issue. Community is a good thing when it influences us to follow Jesus, but it's dangerous when it leads us astray or becomes a God itself. When we desire acceptance that so much that we are willing to compromise. This is why people join gangs and cults or like both of them together and call it Scientology. <laughs> Tell it like it is. But we don't seek community in order to be accepted. We don't seek community in order to be accepted. We join community because we have already been accepted. And community is living out that acceptance that we are family, that you are in covenant with Jesus, and so am I, and so we are family. We have been accepted by God our Father and in Christ because of what he's forgiven us of, we can forgive and we can love one another in a way that the world cannot experience. We're family, we're children of God. We are not only accepted, but we are the beloved. You are called the bride of Christ. He has accepted you and covenanted himself with you. Community is a good thing, but Jesus is greater than community. Jesus is the God of community. Jesus is the goal of community. When we consider our view of money, when we consider the influence that others have on us, we realize that there's so much potential for these little gods to creep into our lives without us even knowing. And we can not be lazy about identifying them and then ripping them out by showing them the supremacy of Jesus and saying, get out. We cannot be lazy in doing these things because they grow and they grow and they grow and they lead us astray. 
We need to get them out because not only will our false gods let us down, but your false gods will take you down. They will take you down. They will always fail you. Money will always fail you. Relationships will always fail you. But Jesus will never fail you. All of these other things will take us down. We even have an instance in here, a man who's identified as the town clerk. He silences the mob. He addresses them. He basically says, don't do anything stupid. These guys haven't done anything wrong. There's due process for things like this. Take them to the courts if you have an issue with that. But at this point, we are going to be charged with rioting if this doesn't quit. Says there's nothing that we can give to justify this commotion. And he dismisses the assembly. And this is subtle, but it's significant. Because the town clerk would be held personally responsible if there was a disruption in the city like this. And who would hold him accountable? The Romans. Ephesus was a free city. They weren't overrun by the Romans. They were allowed to govern themselves at this time. But if there was rioting in the city, they would certainly send in their soldiers. Ephesus would lose its status as a free city. And the thing that Demetrius was trying to achieve, the glory of Artemis and the glory of Ephesus, he almost brought down the end of himself by causing such chaos and bringing the Romans in and shutting the city down by, by, by pressuring them and squashing the life in there and revoking their freedoms. His God that he was so passionate about defending almost became his undoing. Our false gods will always take us down. Money will always fail us. It cannot give us what we ultimately need the cleansing of our sins and a righteous standing before God. Our relationships, your discipleship groups. I love this church, but there's going to be people in your discipleship groups that fail you because they might be an amazing person, but they're probably a terrible God. And if you put all your hope in that person's accepting you and loving you and never doing anything wrong and never making you angry and never irritating you and never talking about you behind your back and never using prayer as a gossip to talk about you or any of those things, you're, you're going to be disappointed because it's going to happen. But you also have the cross by which you are forgiven and by which you are called to forgive others. Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, then neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. Translation, if you don't understand how God has forgiven you, if you revoke from them the means by which you are forgiven, the cross, if you don't believe it's powerful enough to forgive them, then maybe it's not, maybe you don't understand its power to forgive you. Jesus is the goal of community. He is the God of community. He is the one relationship that will never let you down. Demetrius and the craftsmen used Artemis as a means to pursue all other gods. And we can do the same thing. We can use Jesus as a means of attaining something that we want more than we want him. And we need a healthy dose of the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is greater than anything that we could ever desire, more satisfying than anything we could ever pursue. And as we enjoy him, our desire for these false gods will fade. I want to close with this. This is one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He says, 
It would, seem that our that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. That it's not our desire for sin that is the problem, it's our lack of desire for the Lord. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambitions when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I know these things in our life like money and relationships and romance and status and comfort and power and all of those things are attractive. They're desirable. They're not bad things in and of themselves, but they're just not gods. And we desire these things when we should desire Jesus. We don't need to chastise ourselves when we find us enjoying things that God created to be good. But we need to make sure that we are fanning into flame our desire for Jesus because only he is supreme and only he can save and only he can satisfy. Let's pray.